Hey everyone and welcome to the Year Was the Podcast all about today that gives you just enough information to effectively be that guy at the party causing all your friends to question, hey, who invited you? Like, seriously, why are you here? I'm your host Michael Montalvo for the next few minutes we will swim through the river of time to find out what makes today truly unique. On this episode we examine the events that occurred... February 19th. When U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt spoke to the American people at his first inaugural address and famously said, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Global war must have seemed unlikely to ever happen again. It was 1932, after all. But then Hitler happened, and the world went to war. America tried to stay away from it all, but it would not be able to avoid the conflict forever. On December 7, 1941, the United States would be shaken and forced into action by the surprise Japanese attack that was done on Pearl Harbor. That's an episode all on its own. And suddenly, fear itself didn't seem to be the only thing there was to be afraid of. In fact, fear was at such an all-time high that Japanese Americans were being taken in within 48 hours of the attack in order to protect the West Coast. Americans began to fear our friends and neighbors with a wave of anti-Japanese paranoia. To put it simply, what we feared was a mainland invasion. We feared what security risks there might be. And this fear came from the public and from top men in Washington. Top men. Japanese Americans were being perceived as a threat despite the writings of a naval intelligence officer who wrote, fewer than 3% of them might be inclined towards sabotage or spying. But that wasn't a stance or a risk people were willing to take. Army General John DeWitt summed up the government's position by saying, a Jap's a Jap. They are a dangerous element, whether loyal or not. To ensure that his view was the right view, DeWitt went so far as to create a report filled with falsehoods, which listed examples of sabotage later found out to be caused by cattle damaging power lines. He would go on to repeat rumors as if they were truth. Federal agencies would discredit these claims, but the government would not publicly deny any of these false stories, and that led to more public fear. At congressional hearings, then-California Governor Colbert L. Olson and State Attorney General Earl Warren declared all Japanese should be removed, but Attorney General Francis Biddle argued that mass evacuation was not needed, that instead they should look at smaller, more targeted security and pleaded with Roosevelt, but that did little to sway him. Roosevelt had not only the public's cries for action, but men like DeWitt talking into his ear, and so despite any definitive evidence, he made a decision on what to do. The year was 1942, and on this day, February 19th, U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which ordered the relocation of Japanese Americans into internment camps. What is an internment camp? According to Webster's Dictionary, 
with its root in the Latin internus, it was basically a detention center, a prison. And during this time, over 110,000 people were relocated to these camps. To learn how they did this, we have to look at Executive Order 9066. It authorized the removal of any or all people from military areas as deemed necessary or desirable. Did you catch that? Why is the term military areas important here? Well, most of the Japanese immigrants and the majority of Americans with Japanese ancestry or citizenship called the West Coast home. All the military had to do was declare the West Coast a military area, which it did, and then they were free to do as they pleased. With the order signed, approximately 15,000 Japanese Americans willingly relocated and moved from prohibited areas. However, they faced some resistance from inland Japanese citizens. The civilian organization, the War Relocation Authority, was set up with the Department of Agriculture's Milton S. Eisenhower set to run it. He would only last from March until June of 1942 and resigned in protest saying the whole thing was the incarceration of innocent citizens. The mass incarceration began March 24th and anyone with 1 16th or more of Japanese blood was included. The army gave people six days to gather anything they could carry and to dispose of the rest. They were forced to sell their homes at a fraction of what they would be worth, left their businesses, farms, fishing boats, and lives behind. And the War Relocation Authority was there to photograph it all. Many of the camps were not ready at the time of relocation, and so people were shipped to assembly centers and forced to live in racetrack barns or fairgrounds. One of these centers, the Santa Anita Assembly Center, was just northwest of Los Angeles. It was home to 18,000, with 8,500 living in stables. As you can imagine, food was short and sanitation was lacking. There were opportunities for people to leave these centers, however, only after being investigated and determined to be loyal citizens to the United States. Over 1,000 internees were sent to other states to work during a labor shortage, earning no more than an army private would, which was roughly about $50 a month. 4,000 were also allowed to leave for college. They would spend months there before being moved again to 10 relocation centers built in remote locations complete with armed guards, barbed wire, and roll call. They had to deal with cold, heat, dust, and isolation. In any situation like this, there was some violence. On August 4, 1942, a riot broke out in the Santa Anita Center brought on by overcrowding and insufficient rations. In Manzanar, California, a Japanese-American Citizens League member was beaten to death by six masked men. Police tear-gassed the crowd, and a man was killed by police who feared a riot. An elderly man was shot and killed trying to escape another center, and at the Topaz Relocation Center, three people were shot and killed for getting too close to the perimeter. In these relocation centers, families typically lived together in barracks. Families being plural. Several families were forced to be housed together with communal eating areas. 
While at the camps, evacuees elected representatives to meet with the government to air grievances with little being done. Recreational activities were organized to pass the time, and through all of it, there were still people willing to fight for the country. They would go on to form and fight in two all-Nisei regiments and distinguish themselves in battle. Nisei basically means that a person was born in the U.S. or Canada from parents who immigrated from Japan. NationalWW2Museum.org talks on their site about how In 1943, the War Relocation Authority began requiring all adults to take a loyalty questionnaire, forcing them to answer questions about their willingness to fight for the United States military and deny any allegiance to the Emperor of Japan. Those who refused or answered in ways that were deemed disloyal were transferred to the Toll Lake Segregation Center, once again uprooting families and punishing inmates without due process. On December 27, 1944, Major General Henry C. Pratt issued Public Proclamation No. 21 that said, effective January 2, 1945, Japanese-American evacuees from the West Coast would be allowed to return home. And while this proclamation called for the closure of all camps by the end of 1945, the last would not be closed until March of 1946. Despite going to war with Germany and Italy, a mass incarceration was never done with citizens or descendants in the U.S. from those nations. Hitler's nephew, William Patrick Stewart Houston Hitler, even joined the U.S. Navy, earning himself a Purple Heart. That's not to say that none were taken in, however. Some were, but not to the scale of the Japanese Americans and without trying to justify the actions taken, internment camps during World War II happened, and without trying to justify the actions taken, internment camps during World War II happened the world over. Canada and Mexico set up similar camps to the U.S., and Peru actually deported their Japanese citizens to the U.S. to be sent to camps. In all, 10 Americans were convicted of spying for Japan. None of them had Japanese ancestry. When the order was repealed, many found themselves unable to return to their homes. Hostility was still high, and many towns displayed signs telling evacuees never to return. Many properties had also been seized by the government for non-payment of taxes, leading many to have to start over, their feelings of loss and betrayal covered up by the phrase, it can't be helped. Fred Korematsu would test the act of government relocation in court, but in Korematsu versus the United States, 1944, the Supreme Court justified the executive order as a wartime necessity. In 1982, a presidential commission would name race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership as the cause of the camps. And then in 1988, President Ronald Reagan would sign a bill giving each surviving internee, roughly 80000 at the time, a tax-free check for $20,000 and an apology from the U.S. government. USHistory.org states, The American concentration camps never reached the levels of Nazi death camps as far as atrocities are concerned. They remain a dark mark on the nation's record of respecting civil liberties and cultural differences. 
Presidential advisor John J. McCloy once said that if it came to a choice between national security and the guarantee of civil liberties in the Constitution, that he considered the Constitution just a scrap of paper. Order 9066 would last until 1976, when it was officially repealed by President Gerald Ford. Expressing regret, he said, February 19th is the anniversary of a sad day in American history. It was on that date in 1942 that Executive Order 9066 was issued, resulting in the uprooting of loyal Americans. We now know what we should have known then. Not only was that evacuation wrong, but Japanese Americans were and are loyal Americans. I call upon the American people to affirm with me this American promise, that we have learned from the tragedy of that long-ago experience forever to treasure liberty and justice for each individual American, and resolve that this kind of action shall never again be repeated. And that's going to do it for us today. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, give us a rate and a review. That helps me out and helps me steer this in a direction that is hopefully good for all. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find the audio version on your podcast app of choice. You can find me on social media and at YouTube at the Apple Cider Club. And as always, I want to thank the Tim Kreitz Band for our musical theme and to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 